Welcome back to The Imposterous. The Imposterous is hosted by me, Graham Drew, and Michael Knox, two rather insecure creative frauds who will be exploring the motivating and sometimes debilitating experiences we all have with imposter syndrome, with a sneaky suspicion that it might just be your superpower if you let it. weekend and we did i did a roast lamb and Mm. um my favorite thing about cooking roast lamb even more than having the roast lamb is the sandwiches you can make the next day yeah i I think it's not just not just the lamb but the whole lot big chunky bread mint sauce roast potatoes stuffing lamb that all sounds really good it's the best hi 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 give me a second i'll do nothing i'll just wait here so anyway, yeah, that, I just had my second version of that sandwich today. <laughs> it's lingering. How are you, Great Anouk? to meet you, Anouk. Hi, nice to meet you too. First of all, I wanted to say I'm so sorry for being so hard to contact and so slowly in writing back. But the past weeks have been, I think, the craziest in the last four years. So oh, we have to it's hear basically about that. Hey, when we first mentioned this subject, when we first started talking and I, I said, we'd love to have you on The Imposterous to talk about imposter syndrome, you were very eager, I'll say, thankfully, to um, mm-hmm. to talk about this subject and you mentioned um, the fact. And I, and I think I, I heard it said, um, and we'll talk about uh, Kill Your Darlings, but it's mentioned in there that you were Germany's youngest creative director. And I wanted to mm-hmm. talk about um, age and being young talent and the industry's obsession with youth and 30 under 30s and 40 under 40s and um, how achievements can affect confidence and happiness just to start this off in a nice place. Thing. I mean, first of all, yes, I am I am the youngest. I've, I've always been the youngest and I think every single meeting that I ever attended. My journey started when I was 13 and since then I never really... I never was the oldest in the room, but at some point in the next 20, 30, 40 years, it will come to that place because as you said, everything is getting younger. Everybody's getting younger in those meetings in the creative industry. And I think it's, it's a difficult topic. I mean, ageism is something that we address more than uh, we address it all the time. Basically, we really speak about it openly. And I think when I first started talking about my age, which I was hiding, to be honest, for many, many years. It was a difficult topic because, of course, if you come to an agency setup and you say you're 26, you're 27, people tend to not see you as a grown-up, even though, of course, you're going towards 30, but still they treat you sometimes as a junior, but then they need to realize that you actually are covering a senior position and that you actually are coming into the agency set up as their boss, even so, (laughs) several times. So age is a difficult thing, to be honest. I mean, when I was hiding my age, which was after my boom as a blogger, so to say, as an influencer, and I was doing the first jobs and they asked me, how old are you? I sometimes even lied. I made myself five years older than I was. I tried to never speak about my mom or my dad because it seemed that then they would 
soon discover how young I was. So this is something that has been following me for, for ages. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. That's, that's like, and, and it may never stop because you might get to it an age where you, stop, where you start taking five years off. Yeah, and the difficulty is, I mean, now coming into the position of the creative director here in Milan, it was also not easy because all of my team members are older than me or have the same age. And then to see me as their yeah, as their boss, so to say, it was difficult for them at first. And of course, every mistake that I make is sometimes also then being seen as, oh, she's too young or she's not old enough or she's not ready for this kind of position yet. So it's really, really difficult also to how, how to see your own faults and your own mistakes and to try to separate them from your age. How, how are you, how are you, what's your coping strategy for that? I mean, because this is fascinating and, I, and my mind's sort of like going, there's probably a mean age. It's sort of like 33 and a third when it tips over, right? It's just kind of like, oh, now you're too old, now you're too old. <laughs> I don't know when that is, but it's not just our industry, it's every industry and every everything that people are quite age with gravitas and respect and knowledge. And it's kind of nonsense, but it's just there culturally and it's very hard to remove that. But it also then when it reflects on you, because as we all know, you know, in the creative industry, you doubt yourself anyway, but when you've got that, you're the most senior yet the youngest person in the room. How have you dealt with that? Personally, I mean, looking back, I always tried to be very confident and just to see my age as an asset. So, of course, the first thing that I always told myself is because of your age, you have a different view on things. Because of your age, you think outside of the box. You don't think in these routines because you are so young and so fresh, so to say, in the industry. And now to cope with the fear of losing this position as the young person, the fresh person, the next generation person, I'm looking towards women who are around 40, 50, sometimes even 60, 70. And I try to picture myself in that age and be like, I want to be that amazing grown-up person that is older and still mesmerizing and fascinating. And I look at women like Diane Vreeland from our industry who was so fascinating, especially at the age where she was not young anymore. And especially at the time she was at the top of her game. And that's something that I'm trying to look forward to. I'm trying to achieve as well. So not to go with this very German, from my point of view, mental state or state of mind thinking if I'm going over 50 or 60, I'm going to be not beautiful anymore. I'm going to lose my, my youth. I'm going to lose this persona that I, I can be now. I'm trying to look at it the opposite. I'm trying to really look at me as a woman and be like, okay, if I'm over 50, I'm going to be the most beautiful, smartest, most focused person that I ever was. That's a great place to be and really quite a sensible place, isn't it? To to really be pushing that kind of looking forward because we'll all get there. We'll all get to that point and let's make it better when we do. Exactly. But really think of ageism as a huge problem for females because I see mm. it every single day. And I also see it on like pop culture that these women, then you see them on the runway, you see them performing on stage, and then you read an article about them. And the article says they are 20, they're 21, they're 22. And then you already feel old and I'm just 27. And I look at these women, I'm like, 
oh shit, they are so young. And this is really difficult because I think also it puts a lot of young women into this kind of pressure place where they think they need to have achieved everything before they turn 30. Like this fear of not being there at a certain position, certain stage in your life when you turn 30, that, that fear is real for many women that I know just because of this, just because mm. of seeing so many females succeed and their age being such a big part of who they are and what they do. I mean, look at Billie Eilish. I mean, she was one of these most successful singers in the last years. And then she's also the, one of the youngest. And of course now teenagers think like, oh my God, if I want to be a singer, I need to be successful before turning 20, because if not, I'm never going to reach that level of success. So when you've achieved so much, and been rewarded with it, right? But it is a slightly poison chalice, as we've discussed, which is that, you know, with achievement becomes opportunity, but then the weight of that opportunity leads us to something. And I wanted to talk about burnout. I mean, there was, um, in your film, Kill Your Darlings, there was a great passage where someone's talking about a place as, oh, that place, that's the burnout factory. And I think we've all worked there, you know, <laughs> at certain times. And you had a good relation to it, where you actually called time on it. You said, look, I'm actually so close to being fried I just need to take a minute I need to take a breath and work stuff out rather than following it to its logical conclusion which is just a complete burnout so what kind of I guess I want to say coping strategies again but what was it that called you to call you know call time on it and made you go hang on I need to work out what's going on here what what was it that made you stop and take stock of things what were the signs I mean the first time I saw signs was when I was 20 one, I think, after my job at Marco Polo as an editor. And I came home to my family, especially my dad, who had just turned his life around and from being a gallerist for over 20 years, switched into being a therapist and that like, uh, yeah, just like even like school, like he went back to school to become a therapist and he back, went back into studying. And he was looking at me and saying, to me, you feel empty. Are you okay? Because I, I cannot sense you. I don't have the feeling that you are actually here while you're sitting with me. Your, your eyes are constantly somewhere else. You, you have a phone in, in your hand the whole time. Are you sure you feel okay? And that's where, of course, I started crying because I was, that's the first reaction. There wasn't even something I could say. It was just my body reacting to that question. And that was the first time and the first sign that actually my body told me that it was enough and that I couldn't do it anymore because the stress level and the pressure was so high. And that's when I changed my life for the first time and became a freelance creative and then opened up my own agency with a friend and went from there. And it was a very interesting journey. And looking into the past and looking into these last two years, I, I think need to be very honest also with myself saying, I have been back to this point a lot. So even though I thought when I was 20, 21, 22, I had learned already so much and I thought, okay, this will never happen to me again. Actually, not more than six, seven years later, I was at the same point because I was never really distancing myself from the belief that what I do is actually who I am. So I never really had this feeling of, okay, I actually... I'm not what I do. I, I'm, I can't separate myself from that. So as long as I see myself just measured by my success as a person and my value is measured by the success that I have in my business life, 
that's when it gets rocky. That's when it gets difficult. And I think right now, my coping strategy here is just to remind myself every single day that my job is not everything, that I am also whole without being successful in my business life. But again, to be very honest, I think the agency world as such is a very, very difficult place to not go into burnout again. So it's, it's, it's a struggle every single day. One of the topics that keeps coming up is this, um, this concept of validation, this concept. I mean, firstly, there's external validation, which arguably the industry has too much of an obsession with. Um, but it is useful at the same time, you know, it's not all bad, you know, whether or not it's from a client or from your boss or from an award show, that validation is important. It is important because it gives you a kind of a benchmark and it gives you motivation and all that, but potentially more important is the internal side of that, which I, I find really interesting with you, which is that if you find yourself hostage seeking validation purely from your success, from work and from other people, that's a road that's not a really good one. You need to look and outside of your work and look at your exactly. successes outside of that. Yeah. And validation is an addiction to, to a certain extent as well. I mean, we yeah. as creatives, we, we need feedback. We need validation, of course. We need to be seen and feel seen. But at the same time, it is, or it can come to this point where you're so thirsty that it's never enough. And I think that I have been at this point for the past <laughs> 18 years or even longer because I was always like that even as a very young child I already had this feeling of I need more I need more validation and especially after having the first success as a 13 year old it came to that point where when I remember this moment with my with my father again where I was I think 14 or 15 and I had just had a year full of press and press releases about my blog and me and not one request came in for about three or four weeks. And I looked at my dad and I was like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm in, a, in Germany, you say Presseloch, which means like, this is just a hole. It's just a hole. It feels like a hole. I'm falling into this hole and there will never be a request again. And I was really, really tense and, and nearly crying because I was so much needing this validation, this attention on myself, this attention for what I was doing. And I think, to some point when it's never enough, you're in this vicious cycle of just wanting more, wanting more and never getting what you need because you're looking at the wrong place. Yeah. It's such a, it's such an important lesson. I mean that, and then looking at why did that, that, that dynamic, that toxic dynamic is largely what social media is built upon, isn't it? You know, is <laughs> that endorphin hit of validation and likes and shares or whatever, and you get addicted to it. And when it goes away, you think there's something wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with you. It's actually the system. And learning to break out of that is absolutely vital, I think. Michael, you were going to say something. I was just going to say, I'd, I'd, I'd never thought of burnout like that. I'd never thought of burnout as a hyperactivity. I guess you think of the term and it kind of means, you know, so it's the opposite, right? It's kind of like distinguished. It's like, it's, it's not about constantly checking your phone, constantly looking for validation, because I think we've used a cliche that this industry, the jobs that we do of creativity can be all consuming. And that's one thing. But if the thing that's actually consuming you is the recognition for the job, that's a, that's another thing on top. And that's a, you know, really interesting take on it. And, um, and look, I wanted to just talk about 
Kill Your Darlings because it was something that when it was coming, I was, you know, personally so excited to actually to see it. It's all these names, you know, and, and a few of them we've had on this podcast and hopefully you can, you know, lead us to a few more of those because it's some amazing people that you spoke with. And it always strikes me as an industry, we're all very happy to talk to each other and share our experiences. And it's like a, a, a therapy session. I just wondered what was your most, your most important learning from the making of that documentary? What did you personally get out of it that, you know, you're proud of? It's a really interesting question. I have been asking myself that, of course, more than once after the film was published and also while doing the the documentary itself. I think the first thought that I had after, I would say, the first month traveling with the team and doing all the interviews was that we are all lost. (laughs) That was the first thing that I just realized. To be really honest, because I was hoping for a lot of answers, but as I said before, the only thing I really got was more questions and it's something that also after finishing the film did not change. Of course, the dialogues that I had and the discussions that we had, they helped a lot to go into the right path and go into the direction of finding solutions and answers that are very much only for one person. I think you cannot find general answers right now. It's really different for every agency, every creative at the moment. And after the film, I just realized that the industry itself is just built on the wrong, on the wrong points, on the wrong beliefs. That is something that I realized. And this is why also still to this day, being still in the agency environment, I have not found a solution on how to break these down and how to change them. So how to really change it from the ground up, because we really need to dig really deep to find the solutions. It's not just changing something on the surface and then everything will be fine. And just, for example, I don't know, trying four days work week or giving the employees a bit more time off or doing a few more workshops or these are some small solutions, but I think the challenge goes way deeper. And that's something that I learned from the documentary, how deep we actually need to go to change the system. On on the personal front, the guests, you had some fantastic conversations with some, you know, some of the greats. Any any of them inspire you more than others? Any that any call outs, or is that an unfair thing that you can? Any say of them no? inspire you less than the others? Any <laughs> of them? <laughs> yeah, no, okay. I would. <laughs> I think I would make a different differentiation here. Yeah. It's not that somebody did not inspire me. It was that all were really inspiring. It was more with whom I had like a um, personal connection from the yes. first moment we met. And these were several of my guests, which was an amazing thing to, to, to see and to feel. So for example, with Nils in London, I felt like we could have just talked for, for days, not even just hours, because with every single um, interview partner, we spoke over two hours, most of the time time but with notes for example was really that it felt like i could just move into the agency i could just move in go to london work there stay there love it there then of course also with mo we talked for a long time and it was also a very very friendly environment i i called him after being in my new agency just for two weeks and said mo i need to talk to you i need i need to talk to somebody Mm. i need to speak about what i'm missing here and about the challenges that i'm facing i need some guidance i need some support can we please talk about it so this was more like um very it was very friendship like and then of course there was also jessica jessica spence with whom i had an amazing relationship 
from the very beginning. And I think these were the characters. And then, of course, Anselmo Ramos, who felt a bit like um, a dad, to be very honest, like how he looked at me and how what he said to me was something that also my dad could have said. And it was really emotional to sit there with him and be seen like that. Yeah, and there's no shortage of ambition amongst any of your guests and amongst any of those names that you've mentioned. So it's not, not at it's, all. It, it's, it's, they're all very ambitious people, very successful. Um, yeah. And I mean, also I mean, with, Tra- with Trevor, for example, I remember at some point we were crying and of course the crying scene did not make it into the film because it was so emotional, but we were sitting there actually in tears because what we talked about was so intense. And I think this is something that I really took from the film that if you share a mindset or you share a passion, there's just something bonding you, which is very, very emotional and very beautiful. And also, I think I mean, one of the lessons I took from it, well, not actually, it's an old lesson, which is that the skill of trying to stay vulnerable, you know, because the, you have to you have to put on this armor with yourself to, to deal with it, you know, to deal with the criticism and everything else. But keeping open is a real talent. And I think a lot of those guys that you spoke to had that, you know, they still had that vulnerability and that openness about it, which I thought was really interesting. And what I... I mean, I took exactly. a lot of things. Exactly, and they, they, let us, yeah. they let us into their home, which was also so special. Yeah. I mean, Anselmo Ramos, for example, we went into his home, which is the most private place, especially for a creative. And that was also so special that they really said, there's no guard, there's no no face that I'm putting on. I'm, I'm, it's mm. just me and me in my, in my home, in my living room. Mm. And there was something that Jessica said, um, and I know Jessica a little bit, and she's, extraordinary she's just amazing but i thought one of the things that she said and and it is obvious it's just that clients and agencies just want the same thing and yet somehow we make it feel like it's an us and them you know i think that is one thing that i entirely agree with about and maybe it's not just advertising but that kind of client and agency relationship it always transcends into an us and them and it's kind of crazy when all you want is the same thing all anybody wants is great work and yet somehow they feel like the enemy a lot of the time and that's you know, yeah they, they do I, I, mean, I, you... I spoke with neil about it um neil reached out to me on linkedin because of kill your darlings and he just became the creative director at the body shop and we just jumped on a zoom call the other day and i said i'm i'm actually not liking the word client anymore i think the word client already is connected mm. to so much fear and so much stress mm. and he said let's let's call them partners because for me, for example, being at an agency and him being creative director at a brand like The Body Shop, he would be my client. But we spoke about him being a partner for the future. And I think the word partner already lifts a lot of weight from the conversation. And I would love yeah. to even find different words for it, but language is limited, sadly. So sometimes even for burnout, that's something that also came to my mind when we talked about this earlier. We were talking about the science of burnout, but burnout is connected to certain signs and a certain stage of mind, but there are many other sub points to burnout that also deserve that word, but also would need maybe another word, which we don't have yet, but it's very similar to that. So also for the word client or partner, I would love to find a different word for it, which doesn't exist sadly, but it's really important on how we phrase it because client and then agency, this combination already is just giving everybody, I think, in the project, this feeling of the old ways. You need to really make your clients understand that it's a partnership and it's a relationship and it's a very emotional relationship. And you are actually in this together. And if it feels like two sides and not like you are together in this middle ground, then 
it's already not so good story. So on that, after your very dramatic ending of the film, <laughs> yes, you're now at yes. Spring Studios in Milan. Um, and I'd love for you to talk us through how you're trying to do things differently or maybe you can't do things differently. And especially, and we've touched upon a lot of this already, just the areas of self-care, you know, the way that you're protecting yourself, having round two or round four, or I mean, you started at 13, it's probably round 12. But, um, <laughs> what, what, um, what are you trying to do differently? Mm-hmm. I, I fear that this question would come up to some extent because this question is in my mind constantly since the first day I started. And it is, as I said, also in the beginning, it's not an easy journey. I would love to sit here and be like, oh, after the film, everything was so clear and I found all the answers. And now I'm at the agency and I do everything differently. And it's so amazing. And I already see how everything is changing. And I don't. (laughs) This is the first thing that I needed to realize. I needed to step out of it again a couple of weeks ago and be like, okay, I cannot change the industry overnight. I thought of myself maybe being able to now be this persona, this this leader when it comes to change and making everything happen in just a couple of weeks or months. And then I had my conversation with Mo and he said to me, look, Anouk, even though there's right now all eyes on you and the industry is looking at you as well, try to not solve the agency, try to solve your team first. And that was the best advice that I had in a very long time, because that's what I then try to do. I try to only look at my team and try to think, how can I solve the issues of these five to 10 people, like with freelancers and my, my creative team, not even the whole agency, because of course we are many more, but just my creative team, just the people that work with me every single day on the ideas. How can I solve their day-to-day routine? How can I make it better? How can I help them to be happier, to be less stressed? And I think I just try to be more honest than ever. I always try to be quite perfect in everything. And also when the directors from Kill Your Darling, they came towards me and they asked me to participate. And I looked at them and said like, are you sure you want a girl with big ears that is bold and has a very German accent? Because I couldn't even believe that they wanted me to be part of this journey and do all the interviews because I, in my core, I did not feel ready for it because I thought, okay, a documentary, it's real. You have the camera on you the whole time. You cannot fake anything. You cannot be perfect the whole time. People will see the mistakes you make. They will see when your English is not perfect. They will see when you're saying something silly. And we did not cut anything off that wasn't like, everything is real in this, in this film. It wasn't staged at all. And it's the same now for my job. I try to be very honest, very critical, I try to always say to my team, look, treat me as your best friend and not as your boss. Be super honest with me. You can cry with me. You can laugh with me. You can discuss with me. Let's really be just humans and try to leave all the highly professional stuff out. Because in the end, we as creators, we tend to work in a different way and we need different setups. And the most successful agencies that I see around are boutique agencies where friends work with friends and they are very close. And of course it's difficult too, but I personally don't believe in this distant relationship between the creative director and the junior art director and the student that comes to the agency as an intern. I don't really believe in these hierarchies. So I just really try to keep it eye level the whole time and be very, very human and very honest and very fragile as well and very imperfect. 
Yeah, and how and how different has the feedback been on Kill You Darling? So of, of how you saw yourself potentially being portrayed. What's the feedback been like of people who have watched it and their feelings? Have you been, you know, knocked over by how many people nod their heads and agree and say, yes, I feel this way too. I see this. Like, what's that like? After the film was premiered in Cannes, I just realized <laughs> that this could have gone a very different way. This could have meant for me to really go either into a shitstorm or people hating me, hating my persona, maybe going towards me in a hard way because the internet is actually a scary place. Like people, if you don't see them, if they're just like a little picture with a comment underneath, they, they can say whatever they want. And especially in France these days, they they've seen it, they experienced the difficulty to be a persona that is out there and that can get criticized. And luckily, people seem to very much like me, how I was guiding them through the film. Some things and some comments that were really impacting me a lot on YouTube, for example, saying, it's just a cliche all over this film. They are not giving us any answers. It's just a lot of people telling us how they want to change the world without doing anything really it's just again people saying um oh yes we can change the industry we can be so honest but it's not really truthful so these kind of comments were there there were just very few to be honest which was again <laughs> luckily for us and i'm really very grateful that much more people found this film inspirational and emotional and wrote me i mean i think in the end i received over two to three thousand messages on linkedin email whatsapp Instagram from people who loved the film and these 10 to 15 comments on YouTube were the only ones that were that critical but they of course impacted me the most and I need to tell these people that some of their points are actually not very far from the truth because of course we always in the industry in advertising we say oh we want to change the world and then we fall back into old ways but I think mm. what was meaningful about the film is that there was an open discussion, that there were a lot of fragile moments and really honest moments. And I think after the film, I just realized that it was very much needed to also show the imperfect side of advertising, just as I sh showed my imperfect side every single day doing this film. Yeah, I, I personally found it a very honest take, a very kind of insightful look, you know, a very clear path to to what a lot of people think and feel about what the industry actually is now to the people at the top of their game. And it's a really interesting documentary. Yeah. And it's not, it's not getting different. I think I, I always thought if I get to this point and I will be, I don't know, 40 and successful and I would be on top of this big agency, I will have all the answers. I will be the best leader. I will be guiding everybody through the storm. And then sitting down with these leaders made me understand, no, they are just like me. They are also figuring it out every single day, one project at a time, one mistake at a time. And it was also again, Mo saying to me in the call that we had, look, Anouk, I'm also again, rethinking everything. I'm also at that stage where I'm rethinking every single step that my team is doing and I don't have the answers. I'm just, again, also trying to find them just like you. And that made me very hopeful that actually it's really the path that counts. It's it's the way, the journey, not 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 the destination. Yeah, I think to what you said before is kind of like lost but not alone. It's <laughs> yes, kind of like, like exactly. Well said, yes. Yes, exactly. Well not lost but not alone. Yeah. No, I think so. I mean, because as you say, that that film, it didn't have an endpoint at all, right? It was just a part of the journey. And um, yes. And I think so much of, I mean, another recurring theme is that 
nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody has the answers. The difference is that some people are finding, are exploring and trying to find different ways of doing things. And, and even in that, they're not necessarily the right way because it's what it's whatever's right for you. And I think one of the one of the quotes, I think it may have been Jessica, it's kind of like client agency. I just look for teams. I just look for good people. And often so much of it is down to not the agency or the model. It's just the people that you're working with and having a shared ethic as you're trying to do with your team. And, you know, instead of trying to change the network or trying to change the agencies, try and change yourself and then <laughs> go from there. Absolutely. Look into your yeah. smaller circle. And also something that I realized and that I think this was maybe the biggest impact of the film on my personality. I always thought that real change is big. It's it's visible for everybody. It's something that you cannot ignore and that it, if change comes, it will be this huge wave that just whips everything out, everything that is bad and just brings this amazing change. But then I realized after the film that actually real change is very small. You don't even realize when it's happening. It's happening even underneath the surface. It's happening deep down. And it's just very tiny things that all come together that then bring this big change on the long term that you're hoping for. For example, thinking about Trevor saying to me, people hire themselves. This changed my whole hiring process. I, I'm right now at the stage where I need to bring new art directors in. I need to find graphic designers for my team. I need to pick these people. And I think before the film, I would have gone into these um, hiring processes thinking I need somebody who's who's a bit like me, who is um, has a work ethic and works a lot and works overtime and is willing to do whatever it takes and loves to speak, loves to be on a stage. I need this kind of person to really support me so I don't need to do any, everything alone. And then I realized that's the complete wrong view on things. I need actually people that are not like me, that are bringing new aspects into the team, that are not just following my lead, but also questioning it, that are bringing their kind of maybe different personality into it, that a person that is very shy can be just as bold with their creativity and with their creative ideas as me being not very much a shy person. So these things, these little changes along the way, this is something that really changed for me, that I now see that the things mm. that you overlook very easily are the things that matter the most. Well, Michael asked, what have you learned and you weren't sure? I think um, it's pretty clear that you've learned a whole lot, actually. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I mean, it's a unique perspective and this is a unique episode and it's... Um, It's really valuable. So thank you. It, it helps me a lot. And I mean, we talked, as you said in the beginning, we talked about the imposter syndrome, something that I have been struggling all my life. Because as I said, also when the directors came to me, it, I felt like, why are they even coming to me? Because I felt like an imposter for my whole life. I never really understood why I was having this kind of success or why was, why? The big question of why was always there. And I think something that I also learned I, before coming here today, I thought, okay, I need to write down all my thoughts. I, again, I need to be perfect. I need to really be precise in everything that I say. I cannot picture a picture of me struggling or me not knowing the answers. And then again, coming back to the learnings from the film, I thought, okay, no, actually this is not me. 
I need to show people that I'm just as lost as they are, as you said so wonderfully, lost but not alone. And right now I'm not this person that you can put on the stage and she will just tell you how amazing everything is now that she had this epiphany of how it needs to go. No, she's just somebody who shares the same fears, the same struggles, and can maybe just give you a few hints here and there to make the journey less painful <laughs> or more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And that was super cool. And really yeah, interesting. Thanks, Anna. I think people are going to love it. Thanks. Thank you so See much. you later. Talk soon. Bye. Um, ciao. The Imposterist is produced by Andrew Stevenson at We Love Jam Studios, the best music and sound house in Australia. If you would like to catch up on the other episodes in this series or previous, visit theimposterist.com. For all other updates or to make contact, follow us on Instagram at the underscore imposterous. I'm getting older, I think I'm aging well. I wish someone had told me I'd be doing this by myself. There's reasons that I'm thankful, there's a lot I'm grateful for. But it's different when a stranger's always waiting at your door. Which is ironic because the stranger seemed to want me more than anyone before. Anyone before. Too bad they're usually deranged. Last week I realized I crave pity when I retell a story I make everything sound worse. Can't shake the feeling that I'm just bad at healing And maybe that's the reason every sentence sounds rehearsed Which is ironic because when I wasn't honest I was still being ignored for attention just to get a I'm longing for
But now I think it's time 